Welcome, podcast listeners, and stay indoors. I'm your host, John Conway, and what follows is a pre-event recording believed to have been made sometime in 2019. So stay indoors and enjoy a golden time where people were worried about a thing called Brexit, believed to have something to do with going to other places which people could do back then. And remember, stay indoors. Episode 75 of the world-famous Tetsu Podlongs. I'm Shinji Ikari, and I podcast with... Bruce Lee! (laughs) And um, in this episode... Well, we're going to have to revisit that goddamn Scottish lake again, aren't we? Loch Ness. (laughs) We're going to talk about fire-breathing dinosaurs... And we're also going to talk about pot paleo, right? You got your yep. notes. All your, yeah, all stuff I got all. Uh, yeah, I wrote it all down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know me, great note keeper, very organised. Yeah. yeah. Um, regular listeners will know whether that's true or not. Do we? We don't have any like fu. I've sort of. I, I, I did try and listen to emphasis on try. Try to listen to episode seventy three to see if there was anything we needed to catch up on, but I couldn't be bothered really. And um, I, so far as I could tell, it was flawless performance. There was like nothing we needed to, you know, correct ourselves on or anything. So, and episode seventy four. Um, which, as everyone's listened to by now, of course, <clears throat> in the past. Yeah, exactly. So, not- so we're going to have lots of feedback on that. Right. So, yeah. Um, so news from the world of news. Jingle here. News from the world of news. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. That means you edit out this bit of text. There yeah. bit of yeah. Yep, speech, yep, yep. Right. yep. Okay, so... Done, done. Done. Right. Um, four things, real quick. There's a whole bunch of... So, Mesozoic crocodilomorphs. Now, everyone's always talking about the dinosaurs, but of course, the Mesozoic, the Cretaceous in particular, wow, it was just amazing assortment of fantastic crocodilomorphs. Yep. Uh, and um, uh, among the hardest to keep up with are the Notosuchians, mostly South American, also Afro-Madagascan, also yeah, other Gondwanan continents. Um, Notosuchians up the wazoo. It's like there's you know new papers on them coming out all the time, new species being named, mostly from Argentina and Brazil. But um, yeah, so and some of the stuff's really exciting. And there's two things in particular that I found particularly exciting. Um, this Notosuchians, for those of you who don't know, I've written about them on Tetsu a little bit. I need to do. I need to revisit Hang them. Hang on, I'm going to have to stop you. Sorry. Okay. Something's making a tapping sound. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's against my glasses. It's really loud. Yeah, okay. that's never happened before. No, it's weird. Right, it's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, sorry. Do yeah. I need to do all that again or what? No, no, no. Just uh, if you can vaguely remember where you were, I can splice it together. For those who don't know, Notosuchians, they tend they they are generally small, as in like less than two meters long. I think the very biggest ones are about three meters long. They are mostly terrestrial, um, crocodiliform 
crocodilomorphs, uh, often with like erect gaits, often with fairly short faces, often with fairly complex uh, teeth, kind of like, you know, um, motor lichen, um, uh, premotor lichen, caniniform and incisiform teeth. Uh, some of them are clearly doing interesting things, as goes, you know, omnivory, and some of them are probably herbivorous and stuff. And, um, no doubt some of them could swim and some spent some time in water, but they clearly weren't as amphibious as like living uh, crocodilians. And um, this raises all kinds of questions about their ecology, lifestyle, biology, etc. So there's a paper uh, that's um, just been published on the discovery of a burrow in the Bauru Basin of Brazil. Um, the 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 rock the unit there is called the Bauru Group. It's from Coniacian to Maastrichtian, so it's the, the last. Its age isn't pinned down very well. But it's the last few stages of the Cretaceous, and they report they, um, Agustin Martinelli and a long list of co-authors, they report this burrow, an oblique tunnel, so it's inclined about thirty degrees, oval in cross section, one point three meters uh, from its inferred entrance to the bottom of the chamber so it's not a huge burrow but um they basically say this is probably a notosukian burrow uh probably made by um a this group of notosukians called Svagasaurids. Mm-hmm. and this is the first claimed notosukian burrow uh, there's one Svagasaurid. oh which one is it there's one Svagasaurid that comes oh libidiosuchus libidiosuchus Amicum comes from the same unit, and it looks like a croc burrow, which is why they say that's what it is. Um, so that's quite interesting. Not again, not a surprise to find uh, possible evidence for a Notosukian burrow, but it's nice. There was also a paper which I haven't got the details of here, which um, reported a load of eggshell, probably from Notosukians this year or last year, and then another paper which I also don't have the details of, and I actually can't find it right now. Um, which was on Svagasaurid Notosukians, and it was on the it, what I mean, it's like the paper's like two weeks old. It reports describes the details of the pneumatization of the palate and the base of the brain case in Svagasaurids, and the various like pneumatic details um, are linked with vocalization in living crocodilians. So they say this is the first evidence for. Uh, vocalizing in a fossil crocodilomorph, um, which is, I think, something, again, we, we might predict, but this is the first time there's direct evidence for it. Mm. And I, I can't, like, I'm really vague on the details. I don't have the paper with me. Um, all of the kind of crocodile, alligator, and all their fossil relative type animals are crocodilomorphs. That includes, like, really archaic groups from, like, the Triassic onwards. Uh, then there's a subgroup of that called crocodiliforms, which doesn't include the really archaic ones and possibly also the mostly aquatic <clears throat> thalatosuchians. And then crocodilians, with a Y, are a subset of crocodiliforms, although other systems of nomenclature are in use also. Uh, so crocodilomorphs and crocodiliforms are not interchangeable terms. <laughs> I kind of wish we'd kept the suffix morphs as a jargon term to mean morphology that we didn't use it as a part of phylogenetic naming i think so you could say crocodile morphs as in crocodile shaped animals it's what it means literally but that would you can't do that because we've gone and named lots and lots and lots and lots of clades with morphs or forms haven't we 
I think that all the decisions made on the names of these clades and lineages, I think all the decisions are bad ones, <laughs> basically all of them. And they've all been made by, by uh, we must have covered this before, but they've all been made by people who've got a specific idea on the fact that the general principle guiding a lot of this use of names has been that the traditional name, so for example, you think of, think of, all the crocodile-type animals, what do you call them, crocodilians, the argument is that that name should actually only apply to the crown group. Oh, the crown group thing, yeah. So, and then if crocodilia <coughs> applies only to the crown group, then all of the fossil lineages, the clade includes all the fossil lineages plus the crown groups and needs another name, which is why we get things like crocodilian forms and crocodilian morpha and... Um, and it's and yeah. then you have then you have people disagreeing is that a good idea or not and you have people using the crown what's now the crown group name for the total group so then you every some every single time you then have to describe the group you have to say I'm using it in the sense of this author and not the sense of this author and you just have to add like a thousand extra words to every single discussion and this is now the case for well you name it for like all the groups of organisms and we could talk about that at length but it's very dry and boring a lot of people don't like it um but yeah so a whole bunch of notasukian things and the world of mesozoic crocodile morphs wow it's always really cool um yeah notasukians are interesting because they're not crocodile morphs in my sense really oh sorry my sense in the sense that they've actually got quite a different body shape a lot of them right you don't look at it and think cool crocodile yeah very different from crocodilians as in the living crocs alligators and gharials uh without doubt um also on mesozoic reptiles now um about well a couple of months ago we're talking in september 2019 a couple of months ago at the university of alberta the sixth triennial mosasaur and marine reptiles meeting happened a load of amazing stuff went down um yeah cool stuff on protostega turtles mosasaurs elasmosaurus etc etc um but one thing that excites me in particular is Dmitry Grigor- Grigoriev's talk. I don't know the whole title of the talk, but it basically had the word toothless. It's something like toothless rulers of Cretaceous seas in there. And I thought, wait a minute, this is a Mosasaur conference. Is Dmitry Grigoriev getting at the thing I think he's getting at, which is that it's been discussed a lot, discussed it a lot for dinosaurs in the world and various other projects. Mosasaurs are lizards. Lizards, like monitor lizards, they open their mouths. Where are those giant teeth? It's very well known among anyone interested in paleo art that soft tissue basically conceals the teeth. Even when the jaws are flipping open, you can't see the teeth, right? So much gum tissue and lip tissue and stuff. And his talk, Toothless Rulers, uh, basically, I think I'm allowed to say this because it was announced at the conference, um, there is a mosasaur specimen that has facial soft tissues preserved or impressions of soft tissues. And that shows what we might predict based on living lizards, that the giant teeth of mosasaurs in life were mostly concealed. Not fully concealed. If the animal's mouth was open and it was about to bite something or if it was biting down on something, then uh, you would see teeth. But um, ordinarily, you wouldn't. You certainly wouldn't when the jaws were closed um yeah, yeah the teeth have got to be able to get out somehow to, to pierce things obviously but yeah yeah covered in yeah, yeah. it's also not the same for all mosasaurs because they're, they're they're all quite different in terms of how their teeth interlock and stuff mm. but um but yeah that, that that's cool and is in keeping with stuff that yeah like i say has been predicted and discussed in the paleo art community um and finally 
news from the world of news. Loch Ness. <laughs> so, a couple of years ago, Professor Neil Gemmell read a book called Hunting Monsters by Darren Nash. And therein, it proposes the humble contention that one should sample what's known as eDNA, environmental DNA, from the waters of the loch and um, find out whether there's a monster or not. And um, murmurings and rumours from various people associated with research at Long Ness had said to me that they'd done that stuff and got uh, tedious, predictable results. <laughs> so uh, I put it in there. I said, well, so I said something like, yeah, we know there's no Nessie because they've done eDNA. And it turns out that was a slight exaggeration. I think that some initial forays had been considered or some samples had been shipped. And I don't mean put in a relationship. I mean that they had sent off some bits of water and said, you know, we someone should do eDNA on this. But um, it hadn't been done properly and thoroughly. And, um, yeah, so... So Professor Gemmell uh, led this project at Loch Ness. Now, he clearly saw it and ran it as a science outreach project. So it's like, who cares if there's a Loch Ness monster? There. Uh, spoiler, may not be. But, <laughs> spoiler, but order, may not yeah, be. Yeah, okay, <laughs> may not be. But in talking to journalists about sampling the waters of Loch Ness for eDNA, you basically had... Literally, uh, <laughs> literally, you had about a million journalists, news outlets worldwide having to talk about environmental DNA, biological sampling and that. Because none of them just ran an article saying Professor from New Zealand hunts a Loch Ness monster. They couldn't say he just hunts a Loch Ness monster, imagining he's, you know, patrolling the waters with a harpoon in his hand. They all had to say he's taking samples of the water and it can be studied for DNA. What's DNA? Well, it's this complex molecule, blah, 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 blah. You, you, get, you get what I mean? They had to explain like three or four steps. They all had to write about like the actual process of doing science. Mm. And they all, I mean, uh, it could have been used as a bit of promotion for the respective institution at which Professor Neil Gettemore was based. I'm not saying it was, but it basically was like a massive successful science outreach program, I think. Um, which I, I've only seen sort of one cynical take on it where someone said, oh, what a waste of time. I'm never going to find Nessie. So, yeah, that's not what it's about. It's a, it's a valid project and it's a valid piece of science outreach. So, anyway, the results have come back in, it would seem. I don't think, I think it's been published. There will be like a, you know, a paper because getting an inventory of organisms discovered through eDNA, documented through DNA in any body of water is a publishable result, and especially so for Loch Ness, given its size, complexity, and ecological uh, uh, significance. Mm. Um, we've said, we, we've we've done Loch Ness to death on the podcast before. What episode? Uh, there's a special, isn't there? It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. In the, um, in the 60s, maybe? Yeah. We were podcasting in the 60s? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, We've been going oh, for quite some time. <laughs> sure feels like it. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so a thing we've definitely we've said, a thing I always mention, I think you did as well, is you definitely get the impression from the Loch Ness monster literature that that um, there's this wayward, remote, northern, bleak northern land called Scotland, and in the middle of Scotland, there's this like poorly known lake discovered by Englishmen in about 1933 when they built a road there. There were a few Scottish natives making a living by scratching rocks together and hunting deer and wearing sporran. And, um, but luckily, you know, some wily English people went up there and, and, and discovered, oh my God, there's this giant lake. And the Scotlanders, the Highlanders, they said, oh, okay, is the beastie in the water, and they always they'd known about it since time began, but it took uh, English uh, technology like cameras to, uh, to to find the nest beasts. Right, that is that's the um, uh, way it's portrayed in books. And I am being satirical for anyone even vaguely offended by what appears like gross grotesque racism. Um, Whereas, in fact, none of that's true. <laughs> Scotland, um, Loch Ness was like a, a major thoroughfare for thousands of years, and, you know, you can't miss it. It's a massive, great thing on the map and and uh, really familiar and used, and used like <clears throat> nuts. Yeah. Breaking news. Parliament will be suspended at close of business today. Oh, my God. This is how I knew about this Loch Ness thing, you know. Because of Parliament. Well, because I'm actually watching the news. Um, mm. It's where I first heard about it. And, um, yeah, I'm actually watching the news, which I don't normally do. What, right it, now? It, well, no, not right now, oh. just in general over the last few well, days podcast. because of Brexit. Mm. And, um, and yeah, it's one of the few stories that broke through the Brexit wall. Yeah. <laughs> Loch, Ness. Loch Ness. Loch Ness monster might be real. Loch Ness monster is giant eel. Yeah. Uh, for those listeners outside of the UK who are curious on Brexit, uh, I don't know. I don't know how cl- how clear is this to non British non British people that like you will find groups of um, people that really love the idea of Brexit, and they do tend to be people who like haven't really travelled much. Who people don't really like outsiders. How how can I say this? In a politically correct manner, um, yeah, they tend not to like outsiders. Uh, they tend not to like people who look different from themselves, as those. But the vast majority of uh, people that you might interact with if you listen to podcasts or read science news are like dead one hundred percent against the concept that we are leaving the European Union. And oh my god, it's just so depressing. <clears throat> Well, yeah, I mean, it's obvious political divide that happens in um, many countries, right? Sort of a rural city divide. Um, Education levels have got a lot to do with it. But especially if you're a scientist, internationalism is strong amongst scientists because and academics because they expect to be able to work in different countries, Um a lot of your colleagues are from different countries. People you speak to every day are probably from different countries. So it's not, yeah, it's not surprising that uh, 
Yeah. yeah. Um, especially academics um, uh, would be uh, very much against Brexit. It's made academia a lot of a lot easier a lot of the stuff around just careers easier right sorry well, yeah, uh, the european the, union of course yeah even not not thinking about academic careers i mean just thinking yeah. about like the future and environmental legislation and what it means for our children that sort of thing uh, so okay that was a little tangent um yeah, so so neil gemmel and colleagues they um uh, collected water from they they did like loads of in, uh, environmental sampling for for dna and they seem to have released the species that were recovered in the sample and it's uh, i don't have it with me but it looks to be a, like a list of all the fish species you might expect <laughs> to be there together with things like nematodes and you know stuff uh they didn't have there's a few mammals they didn't have that's surprising like seal and otter aren't in there which is a bit weird but maybe that's because they're really infrequent visitors Mm-hmm. Um, but the of the possible identities put forward for the Loch Ness monster, there's obviously the late surviving plesiosaur idea. There's the giant seal idea. There's the living telemonstrum idea. <laughs> I don't think that's taken seriously. There's the giant eel idea. And what seems to have happened is they've they seemingly have ruled out everything. There's, there's, they said there's no plesiosaurs in the lock. Now, you might say, well, you don't have DNA from a plesiosaur, but we at least think that plesiosaurs are reptiles and they're on the same lineage that includes archosaurs and squamates. And they didn't find any DNA of any animal like that, um, nor did they find, like, turtle DNA. But... Um, um, because they couldn't, because they found eel DNA, they said they can't. The j- journalists have spun this as, "Oh, it might be a giant eel," which, of course, is not what they've said at all. They've said, "Well, the one thing we can't rule out is the eel idea because we have eel DNA." They haven't said we found. <laughs> it's being spun as if they've found evidence f- supporting the giant eel idea, which is like obviously not the case. <laughs> The giant eel idea has been mooted since at least the 1960s and possibly beforehand. I think, was it Morris Burton at the NHS, the British Museum of Natural History? I always get Morris Burton confused with... No, it was the other guy, the other, the fish guy, Dennis Tucker. I think it was Dennis Tucker at the British Museum of Natural History. Who was the... But, um, decades... John Downs and buddies at the Centre for Fortean Zoology have um, uh, also promoted the concept of uh, gigantic non-breeding resident eels uh, being the explanation for some lake monsters. So, no, Neil Gimmel's results do not support that idea. They're just not ruled out, which is not the same as saying you support something else. <laughs> Yeah, not ruled out in the most unspectacular unspec- of ways, right? But it's mm. you would absolutely expect to find eel DNA. <laughs> yeah, in such a thing, it was never going to be ruled out by this method. Yes. Um. So yeah, it's it's just a whole bunch of nothing. And it so gets I've... back to the way all these things are always reported because it's a little jokey story. It's like human interest stories and. Um, they're just treated like a little joke. Who cares? Like, who cares whether they get it completely wrong? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we get it completely wrong because 
It's just a little joke. This is why it's here. It's a little joke. It's a little light relief from Brexit, right, is the way they're thinking about it. Um, it's partly why I hate journalism. They the only think that um, – I hate journalism. I hate everything. <laughs> it's my, to the list. my biggest complaint about journalism, they think that the only serious subject in the world is politics. Yeah, yes, but they tend to have specialist journalists for sport, mm. right? Um, yeah, um, and it's just crazy. <laughs> the science is a very serious subject in terms of impact and things and people understanding what's actually going on. And this constant erosion of, oh, boffins constantly change their minds about stuff because you just keep reporting science in the most idiotic way. It's, yeah, it's super annoying. Um, you have special science science journalists, of course, and they do a much better job. But the science literacy amongst regular journalists is appalling. Mm. Um, mm. And they get to decide what the big headlines are that go in the big stories, right? And uh, yes, uh, rant. Anyway, yep. I mean, Loch Ness kind of is a bit of a joke. I do think it is a bit of a joke. It's all right, but I wish they'd reported a little bit more, like um, like it is, right? We, yep, scientists found absolutely no evidence of Nessie, right? Mm. Yet again, ha ha, right? Mm. Oh, yes, what a big joke. Nessie doesn't exist. Some people think it does exist. And it's kind of funny that they think that, given the complete lack of evidence. Would be, I don't know, would be the more obvious take to, but they just want it to be real. I haven't seen, yeah, I haven't seen a single article that's reported it accurately. They've all said... Could be giant eel. Yeah. Um, now, if if Gemmell and colleagues are saying that eels are, they 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 seem to be implying that eel um, DNA is abundant in the loch. That's really interesting because uh, the European eel is another one of these animals that's undergone catastrophic decline within recent years. Like loads of places that used to have them don't have them anymore, or places that do have them now only have a fraction of them. Mm. So. Does it mean that there is actually a healthy, good population of eels in Loch Ness, or is it instead an artifact of the the fact that eDNA in some environments persists for a long time, or something like that? Or it could be that the the the, the, the their discovery of eel eDNA has been overstated. So if they, I think I've seen a quote from Professor Gemmell, something along the lines of "We found the eel DNA everywhere." Uh, well, that could mean they found it at five sample sites. Yeah, so that's that, Loch Ness. And Loch Ness. Giant Nessie, eel. Nessie, giant eel. And Mystery yeah, so... solved. <laughs> Plenty of that old section wasn't. You're definitely recording, right? Yeah. Um, one last thing. on This is still in the news from the World of News section, I think. One last thing. Mm-hmm. Do you remember... Way, way back, possibly something like 2006-ish, the claim that a dicynodont had been discovered in the Cretaceous rocks of Australia. Dicynodonts are supposed to have gone extinct in the Triassic, and so this was mooted as evidence that they had persisted for, you know, tens of millions of years later uh, in Australia. And the paper and the paper's is description of like a partial maxilla with a caniniform tusk. And um, the authors, Tony Thelborn and a colleague, they said that um, 
this shows that you know even back in the Cretaceous, Australia was some um, like weird and unique. Yeah, some refuge for like late surviving yeah. weirdies. Well, <laughs> much like today. <laughs> uh, how unpredictable. Um, well, it's since been suggested that the um, fragment is not from a dystonant, but it might be from a um, crocodiliform of some sort. I think a barasukid has been a suggestion. Uh-huh. Nice try, but mm, turns out it's not right either. That That's not the explanation. It is actually as revealed in a new paper published 3rd of September 2019 by Espen Knutsen and Emma Erlemans, the last dicynodont reassessing the taxonomic and temporal relationships of a contentious Australian fossil. They show that, uh, first of all, it's not from the Cretaceous. It's like Pliocene or Pleistocene. Hmm. Now I, oh, that's even better. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I think they used various... Uh, I, I don't have access to the paper. I'm just looking at what's online. It's paywalled to f- um, Thanks. <laughs> they've, they've used like a geological, anatomical, and historical aspects of the specimen through museum archival research, detrital zircon geochronology, trace element analysis, and X-ray synchrotron microtomography. And they show that, yeah, it's young, pliopleistine, and also it ain't no... Dicynodon, bit of skull, and it, nor is it from a barosuchid crocodiliform. It's from a diprotodontian. It's from one of them big ass wombat type marsupials. Hmm. So, and there, the, I can't even see the graphic at the size that I can read. Oh God, I hate paywall papers so much. <laughs> so yeah, um, so that's the end of that mystery. Yeah. Hmm. So, so it's quite funny because it'd be like, um, <laughs> imagine, imagine you're rooting around in the, the Permian, a Permian collection of fossils from, no, let's, okay, let's start again. You're rooting around in a museum <laughs> in their Cretaceous stuff from Africa and you find the first evidence for a Cretaceous relative of Dimetrodon. Wow. Dimetrodon type animals survived in southern Africa into the Cretaceous. No, it turns out it's just the discarded bit of KFC <laughs> from the nearest. Uh, this is not to just edit edit this whole bit out. I sound okay. like an idiot. Yeah, just get rid of that bit. That's rubbish. Okay. But um, the fact that it just turned out to be some old crappy diprotodontian. Uh, yep. <laughs> Lame. They, they suck. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like diprotodontians, but they ain't no dicynodonts. <laughs> Yeah, well, so that's pretty disappointing, isn't it? Um, anything based on a scrap is always like, eh, yeah. yeah. Lots of bones can look like other bones. Yeah. How many uh, times have I said the same thing, though? I say that every single time, every single time, someone, because I've done this many times in my own career, you make a d- stupid mistake. So you describe it as a bird vertebra. No. There's like seven other groups that have the same characters, and it's actually one of those. So, okay, well, I know that now. So you say, okay, next time I'll be more careful. <laughs> but then you bump into the next thing. It's like, wow, that's definitely like the first Paleocene Tyrannosaur or something. And it's like, no, it's actually uh, happens. It, w- it always will happen. Yeah. None of us can be experts on the anatomy of everything. And, and often the sort of tests that you want to or need to uh, perform 
you know, just can't be done or are difficult to do or it requires other people with different expertise or something. Um, so I've made a bunch of mistakes like that and I'm not too ashamed of them. Yeah, well, if you're expert in certain groups and it's got the characters to support it being in that group, then that's what you naturally will think, right? But, um, yeah, you don't realise that there's a whole other group out there with the same characters or could have mm. even weirdos in that group that have those characters. Sort of a famous example of this is Proto-Avis, isn't it, which is collected from a bunch of things. And some of those things are weird. Mm. Uh, um members of their groups. Yeah. Chatterjee has made a whole fauna out of them, hasn't he? Triassic fauna of yeah. all sorts well, no. of things. No, Chatterjee hasn't made a fauna out of them. Chatterjee has claimed that, for those who don't know, um, researcher based at Texas Tech University, Sankar Chatterjee, he claimed in probably the late 80s that he had an important fossil that's relevant to the origin of bird story. He called it Proto-Avis. Was it Texensis? I think Protoevis Texensis. But it comes from the Triassic, so it pushes the evolution and diversification of all the bird-like dinosaurs, you know, way back, like something like, I don't know, 100 million years earlier than the rest of the fossil record indicates. And um, there was quite a bit of scepticism about this, but some people who looked at the fossil said, well, no, you've got some bits like, you know, brain case bits and, you know, bits from the back of the skull that do look really very bird-like. Uh, it turns out that that he actually had like made a composite out of sort of four or five different animals, but some of which are of very bird-like anatomy. So there is probably like some kind of theropod in there. There is also some stuff from Drapanosaurs in there, this weird group of uh, – still not clear what they were doing. Some of them were climbing. Some of them were maybe burrowing. Some of them were maybe swimming. Or maybe they were all climbing. Who knows? Um, different views on them. But some there's some Drapanosaur bits in there, and Drapanosaurs were con- are convergently very bird-like in aspects of the skull and neck. So – wasn't a totally kind of you know silly mistake, but um, but yeah, it turned out to be several animals cobbled together. And have have I ever told the story about Samrukia? You know, you'll remember Samrukia because you did some artwork for it, where we 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 published it as a giant bird. But um, it's based on two halves of a a really big lower jaw, really big for a Cretaceous bird, like a skull length, like approaching thirty centimeters. But the thing that made us think that it was a bird. Um, I don't want to tell the whole story now, but we thought it was a bird to start with because we were looking at part of the skull, part of the lower jaw, the front part, which turned out to not be real, turned out to be an augmentation. And by the time that was removed and we only had the back parts of the lower jaw, it was we'd kind of gone too far in considering this thing a bird and didn't do a good enough job in backtracking and checking other things, which sounds lame, but that's the way humans are sometimes. Yeah. Um so yeah, um, that is more or less, I think, news from the world of news. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I wanted to correct you on this because Sankar Chatterjee did actually come up with a whole fauna, and this is what I meant. In his book, he's accepts the standard phylogeny. He just wants to push it all back into the Cretaceous, and so he's got into the into the Triassic. Sorry, yes, yeah, sorry, into the Triassic. And so he's got things which he said are ornithomimids and all sorts of things, which he's like little bits of fossils, (coughs) scraps, which he thinks are representative of uh, lots of these lineages that are present, as we think, in the late Jurassic and early Cretaceous now. I'm with you, okay. So he did actually make like a little fauna of um, Manoraptor and 
and on a celiosaurian um, theropods uh, from scratch. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, Shivasaurus he posited as an ornithomimosaur. Yeah, and, and there's a couple of that's... others, but uh, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Done. Then move on. News from the world of Darren and John. There's there's the jingle for that. Uh-huh. his dog. Right. Um, next on the agenda, the section of the show called uh, What's New at Tetsu? Phil Center's Fire Breathing Dinosaurs. The Hilarious History of Creationist Pseudoscience at Its Silliest. Have I told you about this book? Have you seen it? I have seen it, yes. I. So, by the time this podcast is on... Is uh, listen is uh, is people can listen to this podcast? <laughs> my review of this, my very lengthy review of this book, will already be online, so people will doubtless already be familiar with my thoughts. Mm-hmm. But but um, Phil Center uses this book to basically go through all of the different creationist claims about um, uh, fire breathing dinosaurs, and. Um, Obviously, you know, shows as as would be in keeping with his other public uh, publications on uh, creationism. He shows how, yeah, this doesn't really stand. <laughs> if we apply some tests, then uh, yeah, none of these ideas. Creationists have proposed that saurs and pterosaurs and marine reptiles and crocodiliforms and other animals might have been fire breathers, and this might explain dragons of mythology. So Centre goes through like all the you know actual biological, anatomical, biochemical, etc. lines of evidence to do with fire production shows that all of them are nonsense. Uh, bombardier beetles do not spew fire. Electric eels don't like burst fire out of their mouths or whatever. So uh, those kind of uh, proposals that creationists have put forward. Um, but within the sort of larger, what makes it particularly interesting is the larger um, context here. For example, like the whole myth of dragons, does it really come from people believing in gigantic sort of dinosaur-sized fire-breathing reptiles? No, it doesn't. The whole concept of dragons comes from rather more mundane animals, which I won't discuss it as a tangent. And obviously the whole thinking that we should interpret statements in the Bible literally as, you know, there's, there's, there's always a good argument to be had there. <laughs> no, it even specifically says in the Bible not to take things like the, the first few books as literal descriptions of what literally happened. Um, and what's the other thing I need to say? Uh, behemoth and Leviathan are often pointed to in the book of Job in the Bible, they're often pointed to by creationists are saying, look at that, there's literally descriptions of giant dinosaurs and stuff in there, right? Um, no. If you actually look at the original Hebrew text and, you know, exactly what they say about the anatomy of these things, they clearly are mythological giant serpents. Um, they're not – behemoth is not a dinosaur, nor is it a big mammal, as is often thought – it's often said by rational people today it's not based on elephants or rhinos leviathan is not based on a crocodile these things are sort of allegorical giant mythological super serpents so that's the yeah go on what i find so fascinating about this is why are creationists doing such a deep dive into tangents right this is such Mm. a tangent on everything Mm. that they Mm. purportedly believe in like fire-breathing dragons, none of that matters. Like, what is I know. Well, dragons? I know why. So, 
Well, they've always got this very weak just for well, it's but I know why too. Because they love this stuff. And I think a lot of creationists really love dinosaurs. They want to sort of own them. They want them to be part of the world. Yeah, uh, They're super interested in them, but they've got to somehow explain them and fit them in the creationist worldview. <laughs> but I do think it's kind of interesting coming at from this from a religious angle. And I think a lot of religious people who are... I guess I'm, I'm thinking of people who might sort of be creationists by default, but a lot of them say, well, I don't even really think about dinosaurs or any of that stuff. It just doesn't seem relevant to my life. What I think about is my religion and how I should live my life and so on, right? This is, I think, how the majority of even people who would be nominally creationist think, but there does seem to be this tradition in, in Christian creationism to really go into <clears throat> unnecessary depth about what we think dinosaurs were, right? And how they fit in with uh, fire breathing. It just seems like, what? Such a tangent. Very hmm. strange. But well, I think it's because they're very interested in them. I think that uh, I think that's absolutely valid. I think that's that's true. They and a few of them have, like Ken Ham and others, have have specifically said they love dinosaurs. And Ken Ham did a thing, uh, a load of little terrible cartoons, which is all about we're taking dinosaurs back. That for too long dinosaurs. <laughs> been part of the atheist leftist conspiracy and they belong to us because they're in the bible and this little cartoon of him kept with carrying a tyrannosaurus on his back uh, taking them back to their rightful place in the biblical uh, story but um i think more importantly uh i think they're latching onto dinosaurs and they're doing all this fire breathing stuff to uh hook kids into their little cult I reckon that's it. So if you look at how have fire-breathing dinosaurs been used by creationists, overwhelmingly, and there's a large, as, as I've discovered from this, this Phil Center book is useful for a couple of reasons. And one of them is that it's, I mean, its bibliography is massive. It's like sort of like the last third of the book or so. That's not a third, whatever. At least a quarter of the book is a bibliography. Mm-hmm. More on that in a second. And um, and the number of books and articles that do actually cover the concept of fire breathing in Mesozoic dinosaurs, it's overwhelmingly done in books written for kids. And it's often accompanied by um, attractive, like, colour artworks showing, like, Parasaurolophus flaming a Tyrannosaurus or something. Um, I think they've done it to say, hey, kids, look how cool our dinosaurs are, better than your regular... What was that? Better this weird noise there. Um, better than our reg, better than the regular stupid museum atheist dinosaurs. Mm. <laughs> so I think it's been pitched to appeal to to mm-hmm. kids. And um, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you've seen uh, creationists talking to school kids, they they really are trying to indoctrinate them. Is it? I, I don't want to seem like Ken Ham's the only creationist. I mean, he he isn't, but he is probably the most uh, vocal of them. And. Um, he, you, have you seen the things he does at schools where he teaches children how to respond to scientific claims? Like he, he, there's this, there's this thing where he's teaching like an audience of like several hundred kids when they're told a scientific fact about life of the distant past. He says, when someone, he's Australian, Ken Ham, right? So when someone says that um, <laughs> uh, Tyrannosaurus has eight meat. You're gonna say, "Were you there?" And all, and so he says. A, he says a science fact about the past. I don't know. Humans evolved from monkeys or something. And the children shout, "Were you there?" 
So, yeah, indoctrination into a cult. Um, but back to this book. So useful review, useful kind of scientific takedown and analysis of these claims with loads of really fascinating little side snippets and stuff like like cases in uh, human medicine where there have been combustions inside the gut due to like, you know, gases left in from operations and stuff like that. Loads of amazing stuff. But overwhelmingly, and as will be obvious if you've read my Tetrapods audio review, overwhelmingly, I really didn't like it. Didn't like it for three reasons. And again, sorry, I'm repeating myself if you've read the article. This is weird because I haven't published it at the time of writing, time of speaking even. Mm. But firstly, look at the subtitle, The Hilarious History of Creationist Pseudoscience at Its Silliest. Now, Phil Center's writings on, air quotes, what's called creation science are actual. He says, okay, the creationists have said this. Let's treat this as a hypothesis. Does it stand up? Invariably, it doesn't stand up. But he analyzes it in a kind of like, you know, proper you know, scientific empirical fashion. He says, well, they made that claim, but that claim can't be true because of this and this and this and this and this. And to mock them, I mean, a part of me, I mean, a, you know, partly I think they do need to be mocked because I do think they are, like I said, indoctr- trying to indoctrinate people into a cult and often knowingly lying, I think. But the fact that um, he's mocking them, you're not getting anyone on side. You're just saying, ha look at these idiot creationists, which I think that's a problematic angle. The second thing is this book includes some of the worst writing ever in the history of writing. And that sounds that sounds a little bit harsh. Sounds it's a big claim. Let's find now there's so many so what he does is when he's got to compare something to something, he comes up with like the most unbelievably ridiculous simile or so I'm trying to find words. I can't do that and read at the same time and talk at the same time. Um, I'll edit. (laughs) Yeah, right. So he's talking about Whitcomb and Morris published this book in, I think, 1961 called The Genesis Flood. And it's one of the first books of the late 20th century. (laughs) One of the first books of the late 20th century. It's it's one of the best known books in terms of establishing... um, like the creationist worldview about how to interpret geology and fossil animals. So they claim that there is actual geological evidence for the, the so-called Genesis flood. Okay, to quote Center, and I'm quoting here because this is an example of how bad some of his writing is. If the Genesis flood had happened, there would be an astoundingly thick layer of conglomerate that represents the flood. It would be a prominent part of the geologic record of every continent. Okay, here we go. Get ready. One that would be as difficult to miss as a manatee on a moped wearing a monocle and a prom dress and throwing handfuls of fancy cheeses to pass us by while leading a parade of penguins in top hats blowing party horns down a busy boulevard. That is actually not the worst example of this. (laughs) Where's the one about petunias and saber-toothed cats? Okay, here's another one. The misunderstandings and mistranslations necessary to force such an interpretation are almost as bad as those that would be required to infer that the story of David killing Goliath is about a vampire grapefruit preparing a pleasant pile of purple petunias as a fluffy pillow for the happily napping saber-toothed tiger that it keeps as a pet and is convinced for no apparent reason that it is a gigantic German bunny with adorably tiny little ears that wiggle ever so preciously when you gently blow into them. And, like I say, I can't find them because I haven't got them marked. But he just keeps on doing this again and again. And it's like every single time you come, 
against one of these. It's like, dude, it's like, it's kind of meant to be funny. There's a, so much of that in the book. It's kind of meant to be funny, but it's ah, oh, just no. It's just sending me off on the wrong. You, yeah, it's just not good. So uh, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's really, it's really failing at being funny. And I, and okay, as I say in the Tetrapods audio article, I feel really bad for saying that. I feel like you know, particularly miserable, as if I'm a sort of the most you know. Uh, it's fair mm-hmm. to say you're not a fan of the flowery style style of writing. Correct. Right? You generally hate it. Um, I I also don't like it. Um, it doesn't. You know, if you want to be funny, it's got to be kind of sharp. I think it's got to have timing. Just going off on these long, oh, funny images, sort of metaphors and similes, just doesn't work for comedy. Yeah. What's the point? Uh, yeah, I kind of agree. It's just uh... well, that could be done well if it was. I did. I, I in writing my review, I did think there was one thing that I found funny, uh, and I tried to find it and read it again. And I said, no, I didn't find it funny actually. It says something like, uh, it, "It said this would be about this would make as much sense as s- saying that supermodel Cheryl Teague looked like a large halibut." And, <laughs> and okay, maybe I do find it funny because I'm laughing again. Well, it's short. But, it's short, isn't it? It's just yeah, bad. maybe that's. Um, sure. Oh, well, I found it straight away. Page sixty-four. Uh, to make mistake it for an Archaeopteryx makes no more sense than to mistake supermodel Cheryl Teagues for a large halibut. I had to find out who Cheryl Teagues was because she's not a contemporary supermodel. She's um, most famous in the seventies, I think. But um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> seven seventies model references. All right, interesting right. choice. And- um, yeah, I think this is a little bit like uh, when people. You know, amateur graphic design. You get someone to make a, uh, uh, or even format a document, and people love putting like extra borders on and changing all the fonts and lots of colours and stuff. Right? <laughs> it's like the amateur writer version of this. Let's just add lots of metaphors and similes and mm-hmm. overburdening the writing. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's a similar yeah. mistake. I wanted to find the cat stick on my pillow bit. But again, you cannot do that while podcasting because books yeah. don't work that way. I, I think we've probably made our point. You like I say, there's, there's enough of these that you are still remembering the one you just read because it still hurts. <laughs> and then you haven't forgotten it. And then and then you bump into another one. And it's like, <laughs> oh, dude. Okay, if you could cut them out, how do you feel about it? Like, yeah, yeah, you could just have none of those. So, because they feel like they're sort of stuck on there a little bit of a way as well, right? It, it sort of, it didn't read to me like he turned in a manuscript and then and then an editor said this book's a little bit dry. Can you, you know, humour it up a little bit? It didn't feel like they were crowbarred in that way. It did feel to me like this is part of his writing style and he was thinking from the start this is going to be a slightly funny book. But, um, okay, I found okay one more example. Far from rescuing... So again, he's talking about Whitcomb and Morris, their book, their 1961 book, The Genesis Flood. Far from rescuing the historicity of the opening chapters of Genesis, the solution proposed by Whitcomb and Morris incinerated it instead. That's rather like... Uh oh, here we go. That's rather like trying to rescue your old college roommate from teetering on the edge of a molten 
on from the edge of a pit of molten lava by pushing him into it a course of action that could potentially have adverse consequences for the re-establishment of any sort of meaningful relationship between the two of you and could put a substantial dent into your plans to finally start that two-man folk band 142 annotation 142 142 footnote alas the Billboard Top 40 will never include the uplifting strains of songs that could have changed the world, such as Cat Puke on the Pillow and Road Dog, a.k.a. Ballad of Jeb, the Hitchhiking Prairie Dog, and Squirrels Keep Eating Up My Bird... Oh, no, stop eating, it's Up My Bird Feeder, so can you... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Thank you for uh, the double swears there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so seriously, he's got a footnote to go on and on and on about these things that yeah. are just completely irrelevant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if all of that was stripped out, literally all of it was stripped out, this book would have been substantially improved and I would be less inclined to dislike it. And the third reason I dislike it is, look at the size of this book, John. Describe its size. It's a sort of a normal book size. <laughs> it's a normal book size. It's relatively it's not much, thick. But... If you stretch out your fingers as far as you can, then it's about similar to like maximum width of your palm and, I don't know, it's what is that? It's like twenty centimeters by fifteen or something, and it's is it one hundred ninety nine? It's two hundred pages long. What do you reckon it costs? Oh, I don't know. I don't really buy physical books. So I've got no idea how much a book would cost. Okay. I don't well, know. As someone, like Twelve pounds. As someone who does buy physical books, I can tell you that a physical book of this size is ordinarily round about say twenty two pounds. But twelve pounds would be super cheap for a book like this, but not unreasonable. So. Yeah, we're in the border park. We're in the we're in the border park, <laughs> the ball zone. <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> yeah, low tens of pounds. No, wrong. Over a hundred pounds, I think, or is it over a hundred dollars? What? It's stupid expensive. It's criminally expensive. I was like, how is that justified? Okay, fire, let me just try Fire Breathing Dinosaurs. Center. It's published by a company called Cambridge Scholars Publishing. And maybe that's why it's so expensive, just because it's... Uh, okay, I'm completely wrong. It's only £69.99. Yep. Which is, I think that's over 100 US dollars. So... How crazy well, not at the moment because of Brexit, but yeah, normally. <laughs> um, okay, that's really, really yeah. expensive. Why? I mean, what's the point of publishing a book that expensive? <clears throat> mm. Oh, and remember, yes, oh, coming back to what I said about the size of the bibliography, it's got an extensive bibliography, which means that instead of being 200 pages long, the text is 154 pages long. So a big chunk of your cash would be going on this bibliography. So, uh, um, yeah, I don't, I, I like, oh, that's absurd. Oh dear. I was going to, so you can kind of complain about the price of a book. Really? Is this something you're going to complain about? But then yes, absolutely. If he'd self published it, you'd still be making a 600% profit margin on this thing. I just, what I don't, I don't care. really, really angry about the, 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 the price of books. And in fact, I even have a talk on online about the stupid price of books. It's just a way of locking knowledge away. It's like that knowledge isn't for you. It's only for a select group of people who have access to it. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's a bit of a scam, isn't it? Because clearly, this is a 
you are not meant to buy this, right? Mm -hmm. Individual people are not buying this. Mm -hmm. This is aimed at what libraries, I guess. Well, I don't. I don't understand that argument. What is the point of books if people can't buy them? Well, exactly. Uh, but it's just a way of making money, I guess. <sighs> out of libraries. Yeah. Um, I, that's the only thing I can think of because this is not price to sell, right? There's no way this is the sweet spot of price of uh, <laughs> of uh, <laughs> pricing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there we go. Right, right. Well, so that was unexpectedly scathing. Yeah, well, normally you pick up a book and you say, "Yeah, it makes a good point." Good point. I've got a bit of a complaint about this, but overall, it's a good book. No, well, there we go. Okay. Yeah, I, I feel bad because I, I like Phil Center. I, I generally like his research. I think he's a good mm. guy. I think he's a good scientist, and I kind of recognize. I mean, he makes a point. Um, he makes a point of saying that you know he, he does. He's religious and he comes from like a Greek Orthodox Christian background, I believe, mm -hmm. but um. So I think it's good for religious people to say to to say to other religious people, you can still be religious and all that stuff, but you don't have to buy into creationist lies and nonsense. I think it's, I think that's a good thing to do. Um, so generally, I, f I feel the book is like you know it should be a uh, a force for good in the world, mm. but then the fact that it's just so badly written and. Yeah, the, the, my other complaints. Okay. Yep. Right. We've just attended uh, Popularizing Paleontology, uh, the sixth of these events. This one was titled Workshop 6 Media, held at King's College London, organized by Chris Manius. That's two names Chris Manius. <laughs> Chris Manius. Chris Manius. Manius. Um, so you managed to drag yourself out of bed and did turn up eventually. <laughs> I was very tired. <laughs> it was good. It was a good meeting. I really enjoyed it. Yep, as always. Um, I've got the paperwork here in case you can't haven't got it allocated to memory. Mm. Uh, Lewis Ray bringing dinosaurs back to life. Liz Martin animatronic dinosaur parks. Richard Fallon. Uh, on uh, the artwork of The Lost World. Uh, Ricky Cool's dinosaur documentaries, Tim Haynes, Q&A &A about, you know, the background to science on TV. Uh, there was a pop-up exhibition with a bunch of talks. Uh, Erica Milam, The Colloquial Science of Human Evolution. I really liked that talk. Oliver Hochadal which was on uh, some key um, Neanderthal and Homo erectus fossil sites and how they've been portrayed in the Time Life books and what impact that's had on our thinkings about them. Uh, then there wasn't that talk on Tendaguru. That was cancelled. There was that Darren Nash guy on Dinosaurs in the Wild. And then the off-the-record session, which we're not even allowed to talk about, which was... Did, were you around for that? Because that was brilliant. Yes, I was around for yeah, that. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. So, and appropriate pubbing and a nice meal and everything. You didn't have anything at the exhibition, did you? No. No? No. I wouldn't have had time to get it together. I had, I was away just before this. This is what I was late. Oh, uh, yeah. the Silk Road. Oh, so is, you do actually have a good excuse. Yeah. <clears throat> Oh, I, it was, I, I decided I didn't have time to get something together for that exhibition. That's fair enough. 
Um, yeah. Um, so which which bit do you want to talk about? All of it? You've got to start somewhere, I guess. Uh, well, um, I've misplaced my notes, actually, so I'm not sure what I have to say about it. But um, And some of the stuff that is most pertinent to the podcast, kind of some of the sort of stuff we've covered before. I mean, for example, Lewis Ray bringing dinosaurs back to life. That is... Um, Lewis Ray's adventures in the worlds of world of dinosaur artsing and sciencing, which is him, and I mean no disrespect here whatsoever, but it's him complaining about the state of popular dinosaur books during the 1990s and even more recently, um, and pointing to you know, I don't know if we should or shouldn't mention names, but where the hell are my notes? Um, him saying that you know this is what the uh, I uh, here's my notes, I think. Well, do you want to say anything on this? No, you seem to be on a roll here. <laughs> <laughs> seem to be on a roll. I think that um, there's like, in all the popular dinosaur books, mostly done for kids, for younger people, of the 80s and 90s, they're kind of done by the same three or four people. I'm going to exclude Dougal Dixon here. He did it a load. And I'm also going to exclude David Lambert because they are both, uh, while they do have scientific qualifications, they're not technically working with inside the halls of mainstream uh, paleontology. But the others who were involved in these books um, didn't really reflect the stuff that was pretty well known and commonplace, certainly by the 80s and 90s, as in like this this more interesting view of dinosaurs. And it's really interesting that the view promoted by these researchers slash authors slash consultants is kind of really quite dry and conservative and boring. And I remember as a young person flicking through the bits concerned and thinking, where's the where's the Bob Backer Greg Ball dinosaurs and they're just not in there and um, so Lewis is complaining about books led by those sorts of people yes which I think up until a few years ago was still a valid thing to be still talking about maybe uh, you know you can talk about it if you want uh, his- historically but I think that the tide has been turned on that a mm. uh, huge amount is uh, your efforts working with the publishers of children's books, but <clears throat> we still get terrible children's books coming out, but we also get lots of decent ones, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so I kind of feel like, well, yeah, that was the case, but the world has changed. We've moved on. Um, I do feel like... Yeah, okay. Yeah, I I agree with you, Lewis. Back then it was, you were a bit of pariah if you put feathers on your dinosaurs and that sort of thing, but, you know. Isn't that, but he's talking about it in his historical context. He's talking about when he's saying, when I was first trying to, you know, do dinosaurs in art back in whatever, 1990 or something. Yeah. Yeah, that was the status quo. Yeah. Not Not that he's saying that, because the people concerned are either like not involved in dinosaur s- stuff at all or are not doing books, or when they are. Um, actually, no, I'm not even going to say that. <clears throat> yeah, um, I guess I, you know, I guess I've seen the talk several times. So, 
Yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah, mm-hmm. it would have been the same. Yeah, similar to what he did at Tetsuko, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. And he's yep. other talks again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Next up. I'm not going to go through all the talks. I'll be here all day. No, no, no. But what's the next thing? Yeah. Uh, um, I really liked... Well, I feel bad. But now I feel bad if I leave someone out. <laughs> but Liz, Liz Martin Silverson's talk on um, a dinosaur theme park. This is a. Uh, this felt like a classic case of where uh, Liz had been bought in as a, you know, um, paleontologist or, or, or student, as she was at the time, I think, to um, advise on the look of animals. And um, they were... They, didn't really expect anyone to want any changes or anything or if changes were suggested they weren't made which is a kind of fairly familiar story so i mean it's kind of a bit weird because she's talking about uh dinosaur models that are you know no real good they're not a good representation of reality they're not at all accurate so it's almost a waste of time It, it is a waste of time for any scientist to be attached to them associated with them but for them to say they've got a paleontologist who's part of like their team, it does make it might look good for them, but I don't think it, you'd look good as the as the paleontologist. Although she did try and make some changes, tried tried to get there was that feathery truodon model, which was likened to a wet dog. They wanted it to have <laughs> they wanted truodon to have <laughs> big eyes small teeth and feathers <laughs> and what they got had tiny eyes really big teeth <laughs> and it looked like someone had thrown feathers from a bucket <laughs> onto it from some distance away uh, and the best story about it, the best thing about her talk i think was i think that's true it's fair to say this was that some moose were living in the same this is in canada by the way some moose were living in the same um area <laughs> and <laughs> during the uh, rutting season took to attack in the dinosaur models <laughs> <laughs> so somewhere out there there's actually no there isn't i was gonna say there's footage there isn't because uh, Dave Home was asking, please tell me this footage of the uh, moose attacking the dinosaur. That would be quite good. Yeah. Um, I liked Richard Fallon's talk, which was on the popularization of the Lost World. Uh, the illustrations done by P.L. Forbes, who was Conan Doyle's brother-in-law. And, um, yeah, loads of really interesting backstory there. Lots of crossover with Conan Doyle's... If you're interested in esoterica and, like, weird stuff, which, you know, I certainly am... Um, books about you know weird phenomena and the world of the supernatural they always talk about conan doyle's interest in spiritualism and his defense of the cottingley fairies and um yeah all that kind of stuff i thought what was really interesting about that talk was the parallel with the um what's going on in contemporary paleo art which is um uh, conan doyle uh, the lost world was illustrated what three times contemporaneously with him or something like that so there were i think two periodical editions that were illustrated by i might be getting this wrong there might be just one periodical but illustrated by um someone who i've forgotten the name of that he didn't like that Mm -hmm. he thought was too sensationalistic and too uh to use my modern term awesome bro and um conan doyle wanted something much more uh, to suggest the mystery and majesty of what the <clears throat> yeah of the lost world, and uh, he had a favoured illustrator. What was his name? Forbes, something Forbes. I forgot. Uh, P. L. Forbes. P. L. Um, Forbes. The, the, the person who illustrated did the illustrations for the Strand magazine was Harry Roundtree. Right. And I think I think it was that yeah 
Conan Doyle liked Forbes' stuff and thought that Roundtree's yeah was just was sensational. monstrous. Yeah, uh, too much like making them monsters rather than. Um, I find it's pretty interesting that this is sort of an argument that's going on in modern paleo art as well. Mm. It's still mm. ongoing. When people think about it, they are. Uh, I think they tend to have. Yeah, it's something if you think about you tend to have an opinion on, right? Well, the, yeah, um, a totally relevant point here is that um, Conan Doyle's plan for The Lost World was that any visuals for it were meant to be kind of like field photos. Mm. So if there was an animal in the photo, then it was a forest. It was a photo of a forest yeah. and about you know an inch tall, to use the measurements of the time, in the background was like a blurry thing that was possibly an animal yeah. <laughs> rather than it being like a rah, sort of thing right up close to camera with its mouth open and uh, he his favorite artwork was definitely this yeah like animals in an environment and the animals aren't that big or nor nor impressive and what um, i find interesting about it uh i think i said this during the conference is that i i obviously come down more on the side of uh, suggesting mystery and Majesty, rather than uh, roaring in your face, obviously. But in this case, I think it was a failure. I just think that the either Forbes didn't have the skill, or um, they were just too tricky to pull off because they were meant to be. He was imitating other artists. That was the story, right? These are sketches from one of the characters. Not they're not meant to be his just illustrations. Um, and they're just they're just no good. I mean, mm, mm. they're all right, but they just, there's nothing interesting or special about them. And even though I come down very much more on uh, magic and mystery, I prefer the other ones. I prefer Roundtree's uh, pictures. Mm. Uh, they are somewhat more monstrous, but they're still done in like the mm. great old illustratory style, which is tremendously technically. Uh, I don't want to say competent. It's got flair, right? It's, it's sort of style which almost looks effortless but is full of mass and light and stuff and it's really they're good i like old illustrators they're, they're really good at their craft it's yeah it's what you'd expect for the strand or the yeah. illustrated london news that sort of thing yeah. um a couple of i mean i've read a lot about conan doyle over the years for reasons not just the lost world but you know his, his writings on animals of various kinds uh, and his own uh amateur exploration of food work in the wield because you know I've worked on wheeled and dinosaurs a bit. Um, I was interested. I didn't. I've never really looked much into Conan Doyle's stuff on spiritualism. It's often, you know, it's it's well known that he became an advocate of spiritualism, and you know, this is linked to, like, like I said, his his um, endorsing of the Cottingley fairies as real and such. But um, it's it's often said. I think it's said in the movie. There's a film called Photographing Fairies, which is about uh, an investigator who discovers that the fairies are real. And uh, Conan Doyle is a character in the in the movie. Um, it's said or implied that Conan Doyle turned to spiritualism after the death of his son in the First World War, and that's not true at all. Uh, he was actually um, talking about spiritualism and his you know sincere interest in it long prior to the death of his son, mm. decades back. Uh, also interesting that Conan Doyle, that he has this 1907 claimed sighting of a mesozoic marine reptile 
like alive in the Aegean Sea, and he sort of flips and flops as to whether it's like a plesiosaur, like an ichthyosaur, uh, and it's and and Richard Richard Fallon uh, showed that it was uh, mentioned that Conan Doyle mentioned it's it's mentioned several times in the literature after 1907 uh, during the 1920s as recently as the 1920s. So I mean to look into that because that's surely going to be in some of the sea monster books, <coughs> cryptozoological books. So that yeah. Um, Vicky Cools talking about uh, it was kind of like a, a realistic but fairly um, um, how, do, how do I how do I say it? It was kind of like this is how bad things are when you try and pitch a TV show about you know the stuff we're interested in. And she was talking. I, I particularly liked the bit where she was talking about how bad some of the big names are when you want to pitch an idea to them. And <laughs> I've, I'm allowed to say this on the podcast. I wouldn't write it down on Tetrabotsology, but <laughs> she, <laughs> she she was saying how bad Animal Planet was. <laughs> she said, they're so bad. <laughs> There's cases where they've said, no, we don't want to show on birds. We're Animal Planet. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was followed by uh, Tim Haynes uh, of Walking with Dinosaurs and other projects. Um Given us kind of like an insider view and a sort of Q and A thing on, um, um, yeah, again his thoughts on the, the how things came together for like the walking with shows, how that had to evolve in the direction of what eventually you know turned into Primeval, how it can't kind of happen again, and what things you know what might mean for the what might happen in the future that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, he, he said he's most proud of um, Walking with Monsters, which is the one that's about. I can only remember the the uh, Permian stuff because I know it's got lots of like stem mammals in it. Um, yeah, yeah. What I found interesting about this time was we've always talked about television and media before, right? Mm. In these conferences. But this time we had three people there that are professionally involved almost permanently, right? They This is what they do. And listening to them talk about it and getting to – everyone getting to question Tim Haynes at length. I thought that was great that that was actually a Q&A rather than a, mm. a talk. I thought that was really good mm. um, about – what's going on and how this stuff works. Uh, it was, if you're interested in getting television stuff done, it was tremendously depressing um, because it's just so difficult to get anything of quality <laughs> through all the hoops that it has to get through that it feels like, well, why would you ever do that, right? Why would you put yourself through this torture to try and get anything done? It's made me appreciate Tim Haynes, Vicky Cools, and um, are we allowed to mention that? No, um, what they go through um, to get things, anything done at all, right? <laughs> that isn't horrendously bad, and mm. to actually have mm. got good things done is is amazing, and weird things done as well, right? Some yeah. things they've managed to get through are, are odd. Um, yeah. Um, well, that's that's the thing. It's I mean, made I like, me think that this television's just not. I, I like the fact that in some cases they almost, um, you know, Tim Haynes and others, they almost tricked kind of the execs into like 
Yeah, we can pull off walking with dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, you can find the budget for five minutes of dinosaur screen time. Yeah, yeah, we can find. Don't worry. And they sort of you know throw it together. And by the time it's it's evolving into what it eventually becomes, the uh, company behind it is already like committed to it and they can't pull out and and so something that they wouldn't have agreed to did work out in the end they wouldn't have the bbc or whatever wouldn't have agreed to it if they knew exactly you know how it was going to work but having having it having worked once it then almost can't be done again so like, you couldn't wing it with like a cg thing today it'd have to be a totally different Yeah, I found the BBC stuff particularly depressing because the BBC surely isn't meant to be there there just to be popular, right? They shouldn't have this commercial pressure on them that I understand how this happens to the big commercial outfits, right? Mm. Obviously, it's all about viewership numbers. That's how you make money. What are you meant to do? Like, I do get it. It's really difficult. But the BBC just seems to follow their lead. Like, they operate like, this is how we measure our success. And I think that's quite depressing, that they basically mm. operate like any other big television company with commercial pressure. And I don't think that's worth virtually a compulsory tax on everyone. I don't think <clears> I want a compulsory <laughs> you know, TV license being paid into something which is basically another big commercial television operator. What's the point? Mm. Um yeah, and I do find the, that a bit depressing. That the, it's, yeah. pitching to the BBC is not very different to, from pitching to anyone else. Oh. For all the doom and gloom, I mean, I can say that there are something like three big uh, prehistoric animal-themed things uh, in production at the moment, and I am involved in one of them, which I'm not going to talk about on the podcast, but I will uh, in time. And um, yeah, seeing that. For, come together in on the inside yeah is, uh, and i think yeah. that's what that came out too that the television landscape has like drastically shifted since mm. walking with so tim haynes previously was actually saying walking dinosaurs that could never happen again right mm. but i think he's opened the door a little bit now and the questioning it seemed to be well we don't really know what things like amazon netflix what sorts of things they're necessarily going to fund. They might fund things like that, right? They've, mm. got, the, they've got the money. They might, they're, they're willing to take bigger risks because that, that's what they want. They want people talking about stuff, as he was saying. Yeah. They don't care so much about viewership of particular shows. They want people talking about Netflix shows or Amazon shows to get them into the whole platform. They don't actually care about viewership statistics yes. of each individual well, one. And when we look at how many, like, ugh, what's the opposite of critically acclaimed <laughs> when, we, when, you, when you look at the number of things that that netflix have released that really haven't been well received they they are now such a healthy monster i mean so far at this at this time in the game this these the new streamers are so healthy that they can produce produce a lost what's called known as a lost leader you know it doesn't matter that, that this won't make that much money it's like a lot of people will start a subscription to watch when you think of what oh, bird did you see bird box the, like there's a whole thing with um um sandra bullock about monsters that kill you if you see them um there's there's a whole load of these things they've done that have been pretty terrible, <laughs> and you know, fundamentally flawed, but were advertised enough and 
uh, invoked enough curiosity that they did bring in a huge audience. So I think that, yeah, the behavior of um, these channels is is different. They can they can do things in a different way. So and things are uh, happening. You can go if you know where to look, you can find um, descriptions and discussions about what's what's happening next. I'm not going to say any more than that. Um, yes, yeah, so my favourite presentation was by Erica Milam, Colloquial Science in Human Evolution. And it was uh, – I, I, it's difficult to have these kinds of presentations at other conferences. They, they would be totally suitable for TetZooCon, but outside of a thing like popularising paleontology, it's difficult to, to know where you would have them because she was talking about the way in which the pattern of human – or perceived patterns in hominid evolution have been framed within – popular literature like how how it's been done graphically and then what impact that's had on like how scientists have have imagined it so she's talking in particular about the zalinger parade zalinger did this whole sequence of like you know this perceived pattern of uh, hominid evolution and how it was driven by ecology um very much the sort of you know savannah driven man the hunter kind of kind of story i guess that's in the 60s and um yeah what this colloquial take on on the subject does for the both the popular audience and also for um you know other researchers for for academic uh, colleagues and then um yeah the fact that at some point you you it's obvious that there's enough colloquial interest in hominid evolution for there to be like a sort of a new breed of researchers uh, who are, are publishing technical papers, but they're also publishing these colloquial science books, which uh, are, you know, I, I've got an entire shelf about a metre long of popular books on paleoanthropology up there. You know, it's become like a huge sort of cottage industry. And um, yeah, and then she's, and she's discussed how some of that, some of that stuff had like major impact on things, you know, sci-fi and uh, like 2001, for example, you know, some of the stuff in that is inspired by some of these popular books. Uh, Richard Ardry's African Genesis in particular, which I have somewhere around me today. So I, I really liked that. I really liked that talk, and um, and of course she touched on the aquatic ape stuff, which is uh, which is always good fun. I think that the um, yeah, I agreed. I like that talk. Um, <clears throat> I think the feeding back into the science angle is interesting too. Uh, I think that the way science is done lends towards small aspects and so you know any one paper can only tackle a very small little thing and yet especially with something like human evolution people want broad sweeps and this includes all the people working in the field all the scientists we want the broad sweep what was going on just sort of generally and i think books are much more um will lend themselves to that much better because it's just much longer you can say a lot more you don't have to justify everything as much right because you can't yeah. you can't justify everything don't have reviewers stopping you from saying your yeah. crazy stuff yeah your crazy <laughs> stuff exactly but this feeds back into the well this research program often is a reaction to um what is said in these books like oh well they said that is that true does this fit into the bigger story you know i think that this is mm. something that and this is generally done in popular books. There's, there's not, there's not that many technical books published, are there, in this sort of field? I'm just thinking paleontology. Not really. Uh, well, you've got collections. You've got collections of um, papers, but that doesn't count. 
Now, paleoanthropology, you get quite a lot of... Um, okay, I just grabbed that one by John Napier, so The yeah. Roots of Mankind. There's quite a few sort of textbooky stuff. I would say there's like three or four a year on paleoanthropology mm. and one every couple of years on, on dinosaurs, I guess. But um, whatever, that's not many, but um, they do exist. But Yeah. Yeah. But they probably, they find, probably don't have that nice broad sweep that we want, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess not. Yeah, one or they're two do. They're more like a compendium of what we sort of know. Yeah. Rather than well, they're not... Yeah, I mean... Um, what what I think I have I I haven't yet like properly uh, explained in writing what I'm getting at, so I'm I'm probably not going to explain it well here. But what I like about paleoanthropology is you have these kind of like um, scenario driven models where someone it seems to happen lots more in paleoanthropology than any other field in vertebrate studies I can think of. Someone comes up with like a uh, a model. For example, you know, traditionally it would have been things like, let's say, uh, the, the, most, the most traditional view, that half of the 20th century, hominid evolution was driven by males going out and hunting big animals, right? So someone will write a book on that, you know, typically titled something like Man the Hunter or the 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 blood driven drive or something, you know, some title like that. And they'll, and they'll then talk about how everything within hominid, um, you know, biology, social systems, ecology is driven by that thing. So like I said, I, I picked that example cause that's the sort of most stereotypical more recently. You've had like Jonathan Kingdon talking about how, squat foraging how like hominids sort of sat down in you know forested environments and picked at things with their dexterous forelimbs and stuff how that drove uh you know most aspects of our uh you know body shape and everything that, that sort of thing you get and and the aquatic ape hypothesis another another example of this mm. this idea where people try to find sort of one key aspect of biology anatomy ecology that allows you to suddenly explain like supposedly explain because they they never do you know things are never really that simple but they try and explain how that one thing is the key to everything and because the ideas you know hominid evolution and what humans and other hominids can do is so complicated that it's almost like well which is it are you coming up with a story about humans being big game hunters or coastal foragers and swimmers or long distance communicators or singers or storytellers or or is it that we're flamboyant and we use jewellery and tattoos and stuff? It's like if you were to tell one of those stories as the main theme, it's like that clearly isn't the whole story. There's like this other thing that's a million miles away from it is a big part of the story as well. It seems to me you can have a whole industry of people you know, following these specific scenarios to explain um, uh hominid evolution and uh, you don't seem to get that for other for other animals people don't write a book where they say that everything about bird evolution is explained by the ability to sing or <laughs> everything everything about whale evolution is explained by the fact that they can jump out of the water or yeah. those are those are bad examples but um yeah you do I get don't... a little bit I guess in some places, yeah, scenario-driven things explaining aspects of anatomy, I guess. But yeah, nothing like the broad sweep you get with, yes, this is the whole story of human evolution and, yeah. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. 
And then finally, the other thing on on uh, paleoanthropology, uh, Oliver Hockadell, which was on um, how two sites in particular, so Ambrona in Spain, which is that, which is itself actually two sites, Ambrona and what's the other one called Toralba, I think. Uh, the Spanish sites, which is where there's supposed to be evidence for Homo erectus type hominins pursuing elephants into marshes and the elephants getting stuck in the marsh and the people butcher them and eat them. Um, that and Shanidar in Iraq, which is where there's supposed to be this um, these graves, where a grave where supposedly a Neanderthal was buried and like flowers were placed on the body. And both of these famous cases, which, you know, are familiar from textbooks, popular books on fossil, uh, the history of life, as well as books on hominins, um, both cases have been mostly discredited. So the uh, elephant killing stuff for Ambrona is not currently thought valid. And Shanidar, the uh, pollen, uh, is I think the majority of researchers think that the pollen is there just because it got blown in or it was remains of uh, plant parts brought in by rodents, by mice. Um, but he's he was explaining how this was, uh, you know, the legacy of these initial claims. Mm. Uh, despite the fact that, which one of them was it? Um, yeah, the Ambrona um, site, like, covered in like nearly every book that talks about fossil hominins. Um was never properly written up. So there was due to be a big monograph produced by Howell and uh, Saliki, or were they two, or were they working separately? I don't know. But um, yeah, basically, the, you know, the big monograph that described this was never done. So it's not like it's sort of established in the literature. And and it struck it struck me immediately that because I know the 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 scene of the deceased Neanderthal in a grave with grieving relatives around it placing flowers on the body. That's a, a really familiar illustration that's yeah. been redone again and again and again. And I, to the extent where I asked him, is that could it be a paleo art meme? I don't know if that's true to say because I think it's people just uh, depicting the scene. Yeah, um, separately a, from each other. Yeah, rather exactly. Than yeah, previous yeah. depictions. Yeah. But yeah, again, this is a, a talking about how these um, cases have been portrayed in the literature isn't pure paleoanthropology, nor is it, um, you know, purely just inspired by an interest in portrayals of ancient animals in art. It's a it's a mix of both of those things. And again, I would think that if he were to give that talk at like a paleoanthropology conference, it would be deemed weird. Um but yeah, it's absolutely absolutely great for for this meeting and yeah, sort of thing we'd have at Tetsuzukon as well. So um, yeah, I liked that. And and interesting that hominins are always part of uh, popularizing paleontology because because if you're not interested in dinosaurs, you're interested in hominins and other hominids. Hmm. And because all the rest of stuff, no one cares about that. No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting. I thought I still, I, you know, I don't really follow. Um, paleoanthropology and so I, th I thought the flower burial thing was still real I thought that was generally agreed upon I don't know I'd never really even thought that it might be controversial given that it's in so much stuff right it's just one of the yeah. main sort of things you you are if you're casually reading stuff or looking at things comes up all the time interesting well, 
Oh, and yeah. also, I thought the yeah, but he did make the point that in general, the point holds that <laughs> Neanderthals were thought to have, uh, you know, cultural beliefs and be empathetic uh, creatures, <clears throat> human-like. Um, that, but that the particular. Is, is, mm. has not held, which I think is well, pos- yeah. possibly why it's sort of a bit lost because, well, people are like, well, it probably didn't happen, but who cares? The point is sort of the same. So, well, as, as someone who does read paleontology stuff, I, I'm, I've read many times that it has been discredited yeah. and isn't thought to be valid anymore, this, this specific case of, yeah, planting flowers on a body. But um, what I didn't know is there's this 2010 Japanese museum exhibition, which was... Um, or hold on, was it the Smithsonian one? Or maybe both. Whatever. There's a couple of post-2010 museum installations that have dioramas depicting this going on. And um, the, the, the immediate response to this is, is, has, has been to go to the consultants behind it or the museum behind it and say, whoa, you know this has been discredited. And in both those cases, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm remembering all this correctly, but... Um, my recollection is in both cases, scientists slash consultants said, nah, ha, ha. that's what everyone says. But we actually went back and looked at it again, and we actually agree with the original interpretation. Mm. So it's it would seem that it may not – well, it may not be case closed on it. And I don't know. There is a tendency for us to uh, – yeah, uh, this point has been made before because – because people interested in paleontology and paleo art, we the, the whole game works because we're basically our currency is knowing more detail than the next person, right? So, oh, you've I've drawn my Tyrannosaurus with teeth exposed because because look at this teeth, there's giant teeth there. Well, no, actually, <laughs> no, 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 the foramen shit. Well, and this seems to be like that. It's like, well, actually, did you know that the um, yeah, well, yeah, it was, it, it was rodents that drag, dragged all, actually, all the flowers. Actually, well, actually, actually. Actually, actually. And actually, it's like, hold on a second. It's like, what's the general – this this is repeating almost what you said, but what's the general narrative on Neanderthals these days? It's like, no, they weren't gorillas living in caves. They were like human, very human-like, sophisticated people that maybe did artwork and adorned their bodies and yada, 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 yada. So it's like, are we really going to have a problem with the idea they could have done something like pluck flowers and chuck them on a body? I mean, I think, I think, aren't we going to talk about, I mean, there's ideas, there's people talking about chimpanzees going and peering at waterfalls for no reason. So uh, I think it would be, it would be not objectionable, the idea that Neanderthals might appreciate flowers or even have what flowers smell nice. So, I think it'd be pretty sensible to chuck them on a dead body. Who knows? So that was, but that, whatever, that's interesting. And, and interesting to know it's not case closed on that. Yeah. And then the last thing in the meeting, there was a secret off the record session, mm. which we won't talk about. <laughs> 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 that was good. <laughs> okay. Right. Done. So that, and that was the last popularizing paleontology workshop because funding that, has uh, used all the funding. Um, there was some discussion about what happens to it next. And should we say what the plan is? Or uh, not? Maybe not. I don't know. Sort of. It yeah. Doesn't feel like our thing to say, does it? Yeah. I wouldn't say anything like, 
as if I'd just carved it in stone. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's not really mysterious and secret or anything. Uh, Yeah, Chris is looking to extend something similar to it in the future with a different stream of funding, so... Yeah. Uh, And some of it might be more public-focused, I believe, which would be interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Shall we stop there? Yeah. I'm really hungry. Yeah, you're always really hungry. (laughs) Doing your diabetes. It's not true. Um, I'm never hungry. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you're on the internet. At the John Conway on Twitter. Um, Yeah, I'm on Instagram too, but I barely use Instagram. Yeah, Instagram's a big part of crap, isn't it, really? (laughs) Well... That's what I think, but other people disagree. <laughs> yeah, I've had the same thing. It's weird. <laughs> I think Instagram's terrible. It's really hard to build a following. It's just not, here's my favorite phrase, it's not intuitive. <laughs> and um, and just, you can only really... use it on a phone. I hate things you can only use on a phone. I yeah. just, like, this is not how, I want to look at things big sometimes. I don't want to fiddle around with my stupid phone, with my, all my images. It's just, it's a pain in the neck. Yeah. It's got some fixed image size, so yes, if you upload square, something. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's stupid bars yeah. on it. Like It's really bad. I don't like it. There you go. Yeah. Take that, Instagram. Yeah, haha, you suck, Instagram. And it's um, owned by Facebook. I joined Instagram because there was an article where a scientist was whinging about how bad it was. <laughs> oh, no. She was actually complaining about how she hated... Um, she hated... Uh, scientists who are on Instagram because all they do is share pictures of their makeup and nails and stuff. So, I thought, well, this sounds like the thing for me. So, I joined it for that reason. <laughs> it's called Tired of the Instagram, Tired of the Selfie Generation Scientists or something like that. So, uh, ha, that showed her. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, haven't been mentioning Patreon lately. I feel a bit guilty because I haven't. I've been so busy with freelance work that I haven't put much on Patreon lately. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm losing supporters, which is like literally the last thing I need. So, <laughs> um, so I'm at patreon.com forward slash tetzoo, where you can see like illustrations for my textbook come together and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on Patreon too, Darren. I keep forgetting this. You keep forgetting um, it. Yes. Yeah, I'm John Conway on Patreon. So we're both on Patreon. We've also and- got a podcast, Patreon. Oh my god! What sh- what should we do? Should we? Mer- uh, I suppose that has to be a separate stream, doesn't it? Oh, well, then where's the money, we- John? Where's the money? I haven't ever seen any money. It from goes that. into the um the uh God, this needs to be in the podcast. It goes into the, it goes kitty. it goes into the PayPal. So and it goes into the, the general Tetsuo. I see. So when do I expect my next money from that? Well, we haven't been doing any episodes, so isn't it just like rolling in constantly? No, because because of this very situation, I thought it would be bad if we had a monthly thing. <laughs> we didn't do one for six months. Okay. So it's per yeah. episode. Per episode. All right. Yeah. So you owe me money, basically, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you're saying? And there's the all yesterday's book sales, and it's got to be money from that. And Cryptozoologicon. Uh, yeah, I did a I did a split. Uh, what a few months ago. I see. So it's about time for another one, is what you're saying, right? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of yeah, a, it's thanks, a trickle right. now. Do we need new stock for Tetsuocon? Need to buy some more of those books? Do uh, people buy all yesterday? They probably do, don't they? I've still got 
I've still got some. This is great. Oh, po- well, this is great podcasting. Yeah, people love all, they love our stuff. Yeah. If you listen, to, pr- prove John wrong, listeners. If you love this stuff, say I love this stuff. Put it in the comments. Um, and finally, I'm also on Twitter at <clears throat> Hand corrects the angle of his ship. <laughs> Let's get out of here. Ready for live speed. <laughs> One, two, three. <laughs> Hand pulls back on the hyperspace throttle and nothing happens. Flak bursts continue to rock the ship. Hand brackets frantic. Close brackets. It's not fair. <laughs> Chewie is very angry and starts to growl and bark at his friend and captain. Uh, again, Hand this- desperately. It's not this- what happened, is it? Well, pretty much. Hand desperately pulls back on the throttle. The transfer circuits aren't working. It's not my fault. Chewie puts his head in his hands, whining. Leia, in brackets, almost expecting it. Close brackets. No light speed. Hand. It's not my fault. 3PO. Sir, we just lost the main rear deflector shield. One more direct hit on the back quarter and we're done for. Hand pauses for a moment, makes a decision, and pulls back on a lever. Han, turn around. <laughs> Chewy barks in puzzlement. At Tezu. It's getting more and more ridiculous as you read out the descriptions yeah. of Star Wars. Okay. Well, when you when you listen to some of the uh, the um, like deleted scenes, the the dialogue even for even for the Empire back is really hokey, and yeah, this yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, call it quits there then. So good luck with the editing. All right.